You're listening to Reframe Your Life, where we explore the power of telling our stories to recognize the ways we are transforming our lives. I'm Sandy Reynolds, and I'm here today with the vivacious Patty Hall. Patty, I feel like we've been a little out of touch for the past few weeks with vacations and summer schedules. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You took vacation I uh, and a tech retreat, and I stayed fully connected to tech working on my next book. So I'm working too much, but thanks for asking. Well, I'm happy to see your beautiful face this morning and to be Thank back you. recording today's episode. And why don't you do the honors of introducing our guest today? I'd love to. I've been following Alison Waring in a good memoir-aholic way for years. Alison's a Canadian writer now living in Stratford. I know she spent a lot of time in Peterborough growing up, and we grew up somewhat next door to one another, we've just discovered. She's the author of Honeymoon in Purda, I hope I'm saying that correctly, An Iranian Journey, and Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter Growing Up with a Gay Dad, both published by imprints of Penguin Random House in 2001 and 2013, respectively. Confessions is both a best-selling memoir and an award-winning solo play. Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter was a Globe and Mail national bestseller and long-listed for the Taylor Prize in 2014. Congratulations, Allison. It was a finalist for the Edna Stabler Award for Creative Nonfiction and selected as an Indigo Books Top 50 pick. Well-deserved. Allison performed the play based on confessions of a fairy's daughter across Canada more than a hundred times. It was featured in theater and literary festivals from Mexico to Sri Lanka. I had the immense pleasure of seeing Allison perform the show at Lakefield and my mouth gaped in awe the entire time. Yes, I was that woman for anyone who also attended the show. Today, we're thrilled to talk story with Alison Waring and get into her latest book, Moments of Glad Grace, published this year by ECW Press. Sandy, do you want to read the back cover of the book to get us rolling with a brief summary of what's being said about the book? I'd be happy to. Moments of Glad Grace is a moving and witty memoir of aging, familial love, and the hunt for roots and belonging. The story begins as a trip from Canada to Ireland in search of genealogical data and documents. Being 80 and in the early stages of Parkinson's disease, Joe invites his daughter, Allison, to come along as his research assistants, which might have been great, worked very well, had she any interest, any at all, in genealogy. Very quickly, the father-daughter pilgrimage becomes more comical than fruitful, more of a bittersweet adventure than a studious mission. And rather than rigorous genealogy, their explorations move into the realm of family and forgiveness, the primal search for identity and belonging, and questions about responsibility to our ancestors and the extent to which we are shaped by the people who came before us. Though continually bursting with humor, Moments of Glad Grace is ultimately a song of appreciation for the precious and limited time we have with our parents, the small moments we share, and the gifts of transcendence we might find there. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. I know that was quite a lengthy introduction. There's a <laughs> lot for us to cover in it, but we're really happy you've been here. And we've been starting all of these interviews with a question about how we're handling life during a global pandemic. And I was thinking about your situation after reading your book. My father had Lewy body dementia, which is, if you're familiar with it, it's kind of a Parkinson dementia hybrid mm -hmm. illness. He passed away two years ago. And I've often thought that I'm grateful he's not in long-term care right now and how difficult that would be for yeah. us as a family and uh, for his friends. And I'm curious to know how you've been managing personally and also how your, your father's been and how this has impacted you and your relationship. Well, I've been doing well. I feel I'm in an immensely privileged position being I don't have parents in long-term care. Um, my father is well. He's living at home with his partner of probably 40 years now. They actually both had it. They both had COVID and wow. really? came, yeah, came through. And, um, but they were not hospitalized. They were at home. Um, uh, and I, writers, I think very naturally, we go into hibernation very easily, very willingly and very happily. So I have been doing that. I, I, it, I'm a very um, gregarious person, but I 
also not just adore solitude, but need it and thrive in it. So, so in some ways it has been a gift, but I think it's been a gift because, because I don't have my, you know, my mother is also living, um, she's well and living independently and my son is 21. And so I don't have young children at home. So I, I just, I feel a bit, even a bit guilty celebrating the isolation because I know, well, because I know how difficult it, it is and has been for so many people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to hear that. It's, that's your story. I, I was wondering, because that isn't everyone's story, and how wonderful that your, your father and his partner are doing well, and that uh, especially having had COVID, because I think it's almost the anticipation sometimes of mm. what happens if they get it. Um, can be uh, really exhausting and and draining. So that's great. So I am one of those people who can fall down the ancestry rabbit hole. Like usually once a year, I go a little bit nuts on a couple websites and start searching for family ties. And I found it curious that you didn't have any interest in genealogy and yet you're a memoir writer because it seems like there's... uh, something in that for me that somebody who records their story and uh, wouldn't be as interested in discovering sort of the past details of their life. So I was wondering how you differentiate between your need and desire to document your life and your story and your dad's desire to pursue and explore our great, 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 great grandparents' genealogy. I'm interested in story. I think that's the key word here. Story fascinates me, but facts and dates and who was born where, in which parish, that far, far, far less so. So mm-hmm. the, the compilation of data, that does not light my fire, let's say. <laughs> but the stories about those people or the stories that I created about those people because those stories are lost. We may have the facts, but we actually have lost the stories in the vast majority of places, uh, cases, certainly that far back. And so that was actually one of the intriguing things for me that very, very early on in our little endeavor, I realized, ooh, I actually couldn't care less where, <laughs> which parish <laughs> they were born in and um, you know how much land they owned or farmed or whatever it was. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the detail my dad was after. He, he was less interested, let's say, on what the story might have been. No? And I just found myself, as soon as I would find a document, the first place my mind would go would be the embroidery around that. So what does this actually mean? And well, for example, when I would look at a birth certificate and I would see the father's name, you know, yes. I'd look at that and think, huh, well, that's what it says. <laughs> well, but truly, I mean, these documents which appear to us as fact and which we take as fact, which I find fascinating and, and um, really um, in some ways, not just curious, but destabilizing because we assume these lines of descent when we find the documentation to prove them, we then assume them to be true, which I find incredibly problematic because these documents are only ever as true as the time and church allowed. So yes. if so-and-so had a little fling with so-and-so down the street, or you know, many cases of, well, of rape or incest or whatever, those things were not documented. Of course not. And, and so babies have been passed off as other people's for as long as there have been babies. And so that immediately, I mean, that's one small example, but that immediately to me, called into question the veracity of these documents for one thing, and then made me question, so what is it we're doing? Because we're, we actually, if we can admit that much of it, we then immediately know that we're not then after the facts, because right. the facts are already questionable. So what is it we're looking for? What mm-hmm. is it we're looking for, if not story? And if we're looking for story, then what is story made of? Where does it lie? And what where do we find the truth? I don't actually think we find it in documents. Clearly we don't. So, Agreed. so where do we find the truth? And that to me, that became the question. What is truth? How does it resonate? Where do we find it? How do we know when we're in the presence of it? What does it feel like? And mm-hmm. what does it give us when we find it? Those became the questions that I was interested in. I found, I was so compelled by 
your mention of legacy when it came up. And for me, it, what I discovered was we were talking about a difference between lineage that might be traceable, bloodborne or not, and legacy, which is something I think we can choose. And you closely got into this debate with your dad about what do we want to be about later? And that wasn't what it was for him. You know, it didn't matter to him that there was a story about the person it was that he had the sword above the door and that meant he had staked his claim. He was here. Um, for you it was, but you know, do we really want to have that sword above the door when we know more about that, that history? Uh, that said a lot to me about the difference between lineage and legacy. And I know that I'm going to write more about that in future. That's, um, that is a really interesting juxtaposition on oh, lineage and, and legacy. And I, just to rush to my dad's defense, he, I wouldn't say he was uninterested in story. Sure. Uh, but because there was so little of it documented, then we very quickly departed from that and came into, we, what we were looking for were documents, 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 documents. And, you, and um, if that hadn't been true, though, we would have lost your comedy. I mean, you're, uh, under, <laughs> the, you're under the breath italicized mm. comments. Just kept me going. I mean, we had a good sense of your humor from your first book, but you were alive in this, like, what Thank who you. the hell fucking cares, dad? <laughs> you know, but of course you never said it to him, but that juxtaposition for me of you and your dad was when we fell in love with your relationship and we all saw our fathers differently mm. and better because of your book. That was oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Yeah, it became very quickly a comedy of errors because we were, he'd hired me as a research assistant, but generally one of the, the skills the research assistant should have is an interest <laughs> in <laughs> the job. And, uh, but I, from the beginning, didn't have that, but I was very interested in spending time with my dad. And I knew we had never traveled together before, just the two of us. And I, I was aware, even though I didn't articulate it until we were in the midst of it, that this was probably the last time we were going to do this too. So there was an immediate poignancy about it and an immediate sense of how precious this experience was and time. Mm -hmm. And, and my, my, my impulse to rest time, not to grab it in my mm -hmm. fingers and hold it at, in mm -hmm. moments um, was, was a way, a sort of childish way of, of trying to um, honor this, the time. And what I realized very quickly was I can't, of course, I can't hold time back, but, but the way that we can do that, or the way that we can approximate that is to be present, is to right. simply be present with people. Can I, to, can I read you on you, back to you? Um, sure. Because it's, uh, this is from Paige, for those of us picking up the paperback, it's page 75. And um, what you just said, you wanted to rest it and be present. Uh, and this is one of the gifts to me personally of this book, because my father's gone. Um, you're, you're watching your dad bent over a stack of sepia pages. And you said, part of me wants to march over and make it all stop aging, decline, that damn tremor where all of this is going. I want it to stop. I have to make it stop. I clench myself together and stride towards him. Every loud creak in the floor, feeling like a glass, I am smashing to the floor. My dad notices me coming and looks up, smiles suggests we take a break for lunch. Uh, yeah. He was so everyone's father in mm. that moment. Thank you. And you reminded us all to rest it. So even though you were investigating history with your dad, you also showed us the power of stopping in the moment we are instead of just remembering because we mm. still had, you still had this trip with your dad. You still had this time with him. And I loved that presence of mind of your memoir. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, that, that's where the title emerged as well. Moments of Glad Grace is a line from a Yeats poem called When, when You Are Old. And, and one of the things that I was just increasingly aware of as we spent time together was um, how life isn't built of big moments. We think of it as these, these big days, you know, the big accomplishments. When I get here, when I, you know, the day I get whatever married, graduate, the big job, whatever it is. And that, that in fact, life can pass us all by when we rush to the next moment, when we are focused on the next moment, the next thing. Um, and that one of the beautiful things about aging and being with someone who is at that edge of life is that they are, they are masters of, um, of slower time. 
And right. that when we meet them in that, when we can just be present with them because they do things more slowly, it's so easy to get impatient or frustrated. But the teaching actually is that when we can sort of sync our energy with theirs, then the moment actually becomes very large and long. And suddenly there's something transcendent that opens. It has a quality about it. It is the quality mm. of a, you know, of a, of a sacred moment. It has, beautiful. Um, yeah, it has its own time. Mm -hmm. Those moments, beautiful. you know, leads me to a structure question I was meant to ask later, but the, the book itself is encased in time, right? It's one week in Dublin or Dublin. And please use your Irish accent for us because <laughs> I loved that so much. And I watched voraciously the videos you put out online of you recording the audiobook and learning oh, the Dublin, right. the oh. Dublin, and all the things you you think and you know the Turd Cafe. <laughs> I'm sorry, Sandy. It's okay. I listened but, to the audiobook. Oh, thank you. The, Thanks. That was so much fun to record. Oh, so much it was, fun. It was a delight. Uh, so the, 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 the playing with time, of course, is both the, um, the helicopter level structure as well as um, the intimate connection that you have on that trip in Ireland. And I wondered if you have more respect for time because of your father's reverence for history. I wondered what that gave to you. Do you have those moments where you stop yourself and say, I really should slow down and have a look at this with my son? Or has it shifted things like that as a result? And we can go into the structure of the book. I want to take you back there, of course, that it is one week in Dublin. But I wondered how the idea of time has now percolated into your life. It has given me practice in that, in being present and therefore making a moment. Um, a moment expands when we're present in it, mm, in every way, you know? And so, so, yeah, it gave me that practice in presence, which I think I was already cultivating, but this was in the same way that COVID is the great, uh, one of the great teachers of presence and slowing down and just having today. I mean, absolutely not being able to plan anything. Um, it li has lifted, I think, for so many of us, the illusion that we did have control over our lives Beautiful. and that we were capable of planning. And that planning, planning, planning hurls us into the future in a way that can really rob us of the present. And so that has been, that's been one of the gifts, both of that trip and then this time for me. But as far as history goes, that I, I guess I feel the same way about historical investigation as I do about therapy that explores our own personal history within this lifetime. That it's very helpful and nourishing to us to, to investigate and understand who we are and where we have come from. It is just as nourishing and important and vital to then go forward and to not actually spend time looking back, looking back, looking back, looking back, and using that to inform our identity. Because I actually think that limits the potential of who we are as human beings, if we're always looking backwards. So while it is fruitful, I feel it's fruitful to a point. And then from there, we have a choice. Okay, I understand to this point what, my, what those influences have been. Now, who am I? Now, who, I, who do I want to become? Now I actually have the potential to be anyone. So we become the author of our lives. That is that. remarkable. Thank you. That's remarkable. Yeah. It, it's something that I'm now facing in my own memoir, which is at the very end of Loving Large, I say, one of my kids, you know, the wisdom, one of my kids at the time, I think he was 24 or so. And he said, like, get on with it. Like, uh, okay. Uh. He said, he literally says, you know, and I, I start saying like, I don't know how to move forward. Right. So sometimes life events and our own story compels us to stay in it. You know, we get mired in the muck, you know, Natalie Goldberg has written about the messy middle, you know, we get, we get mired in it. How then to move forward. And I wondered in the book, I wondered sort of selfishly what came after Dublin? What came after was, was dad satisfied? Was dad not satisfied? How did, how did the next conversation happen? Was, did he say, okay, I've done enough? Well, my dad's an extraordinary person. He, he, he really does, and I say this, I mention this at the end of the book when I'm listing all of, when I'm listing what, it, what I see is his legacy, all the things that I wish yes. that to, to take from him, learn from him, um, 
you know, uh, incorporate into my own life. One of them is that he accepts what is and then goes forward. He just does not spend a lot of time. He doesn't, he doesn't waste time or energy resisting what is. And so he might have been disappointed that we didn't find anything, but he's not going to waste time <laughs> getting upset about that. He'll now just look for something else. And um, I thought that was quite lovely. So no, I mean, the, the moment we got back, he was corresponding with relatives in, in God knows where, you know, the fifth cousin, six times removed with a whatever it is, a great nephew in uh, some parish in Knockney, you know, that he's corresponding with them. He just looks, because it gives him pleasure. That's the difference. It's not that he's um, forcing himself, chaining himself to the desk to find. It's not that kind of investigation. It's joy. He is really, mm -hmm. um, it brings him joy. So, so he carried on. I mean, I guess that, I guess maybe one of the things, it did, it did mean that he would share things with me in a way that he wouldn't have done before. And, and I had the same level of interest, zero. But I, but I listened because what I recognized on the trip was, this isn't actually about me needing to develop an interest in this. This is about me needing to just be present with his interest and have right. that be what I'm connecting to. I'm connecting to his passion. I'm connecting, I'm getting to know him because I am seeing what brings him joy. And it fascinates me because it just brings me boredom. So, so can I, can I, can I just, can that be enough? And indeed it was because we have this funny connection now where mm. he shares this stuff with me and I, all I'm reflecting back to him is how great it is that he feels that excited right. about it like your partner with birds and his partner yeah. with opera. Exactly. I know. Right. Yeah. Did, yeah. And, and, I, go ahead, Sandy. I was thinking about when you were talking about being in the moment and when you're older, that you seem to slow down and time expands and you, you, um, it can be frustrating, but it also can be something you can enter into. And then you mentioned COVID and I was thinking it's similar to that in when you're older, the years in front of you are not there to plan. You can't project and say, well, you know, so my five-year plan, this is my 10-year plan. You just have really right now. And you don't know, like, you know, my mom's in her 80s and she says that all the time. Like it's, you know, it's very much about the here and now. And she didn't even care about isolating because, you know, she didn't have time to isolate, you know, she needs to <laughs> live her life in a sense. So I think there's something about that, that we're all learning that in COVID as well, that um, being more in the moment, and it maybe will help us be more empathetic towards the elderly in our lives and understand why they engage in life the way they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Patty, were you going to ask something there? Because I have another question I can jump in. Way to with. go, way to go, just cutting me off. I did. The so it isn't just about moments. It's about the way moments track into the larger time that we spend in our lives, the larger time that we spend together and the choice that we have in how we spend our time. And the book brought that all back for me. I was amazed, as I always am, with the structure of memoirs. I'm fascinated by how we comprise these things. And I wondered where the notion of the book being a week in Dublin came from, because it could have been so many other things. It could have been a portion of your life. It could have been what was going on at home. It could have been about um, Dublin, the time as a part of your relationship with dad in the latter half of your life. But the one week structure, and for those who haven't picked it up, you know, you, you give in the book beautifully laid out and formatted so that we see, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, and where you were. And you tell us if you're in one of the libraries, the names of which I will not try to pronounce, or if you're in the Turd Cafe, or mm -hmm. if you're at the address of the Airbnb where you were staying. Tell me more about that and how you felt that structure was important. Were you intentionally playing with time? I guess is my short question. Uh, yes, I was intentionally playing with time. I was also doing what I'm constantly 
teaching, which is, you know, our, when people write memoir, one of the great challenge is, challenges is the, is the structure, what I call the container of the story. Because our story, by the time we are at an age where we're interested in writing about our lives, we have lived so many interesting episodes. We've had relationships, uh, successes, failures, moments of insight. It, it, we've had so much that we could write about. And what I find people's greatest challenge tends to be is in deciding what not to write about, not what to write about. Everybody has a million things to write about. What don't you write? What do you leave out in order for a central theme to emerge? And just as, you know, I always use the um, analogy of light, that if you try to light up a large area, a vast area, that light will be very diffuse. You will not be able to, that light doesn't penetrate. But if you mm -hmm. concentrate that same, that, that same quantity of light, if you concentrate it, suddenly you have a laser focus. And now you have the potential to go very deeply, to penetrate the material really deeply. So paradoxically, the narrower the focus of the memoir, the easier it is to get at something very profound. And therefore, Indeed. To, to get at something universal, to have the potential to have your personal story resonate with other people. And so I think I'm probably constantly on the lookout for natural structures time is an obvious one no writing about a period of childhood or mm -hmm. a relation a single relationship a trip you know for example my first book was about a trip that i made to iran the book that i tried to write before that was about post-revolutionary czechoslovakia the Uyghur minority in china the amazon basin in in ecuador and uh, someplace else i can't remember. wow i mean that book of course it was about traveling no it was about traveling as a woman well of course it never it never came together uh i went off it was what um you know to paraphrase stephen leacock i was galloping off in all directions at once and this and when i got to iran or when i was preparing to go to iran and i knew that i was ready for a large canvas i'd done I'd done short pieces, I'd done long form essays, I'd done a bunch of travel pieces, but I was ready for a mural, I was ready for a large canvas. Nice. And when I, but, but I limited myself very consciously to Iran, partly because I, I had had that experience of what happens when you don't have a container, when you don't contain the material. And then by that point as a writer, I think I was aware that when we leave things out, we don't leave them out. Yes. When we, what we do is allow them to inform the material we are working with in a way that becomes helpful rather than distracting. So, so by that, I mean, when I wrote about Iran, every trip that I had taken in my life informed how I saw that place, how I interacted with people, how I was able to understand it. But I didn't need to talk about all those other trips in order for, the, for them to be present. And so mm -hmm. when I was, you know, quote unquote, limiting the material to one week in Dublin, Saturday to Saturday, I was also very aware that that very limitation was going to be my greatest gift to myself because I would not get lost. But it right. didn't mean that I couldn't reference any point in, of my relationship with my father or, or any revelation I've ever had about truth, myth, you know? And you were mm -hmm. very spare in your references to the other pieces of your life, which uh, and those glimpses of, you know, you and a sibling or you and your father in Paris uh, or those things were noticeably present, yet the things that you didn't include were present in their absence. We knew that you had a long life with your father. You, we knew you had the loving relationship. And we didn't have to read your first book, congratulations, because I knew that would be difficult in having a successful mm. memoir with, well, him as yeah. a central character. But what that yeah. gave us was in a novel-esque sort of way, you were able to character develop the two of you. And that was the selling feature of the storyline for me was that it was so deeply embedded in character because you had the time, not to overuse the, the term, but you had the time and space in the book to take us into dialogue and scene to show us the, all the elements of characterization, like seeing your father through someone else's eyes. Possibly the highlight of that for me was when <clears throat> you met your two cousins and the two cousins were so, they were characters in a comic book. They could have been right out of a television mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. And that showed us your father and you in contrast with these other people who were your relatives. And you're like, it doesn't matter if there are relatives. But these were just these wonderful Irish people, one of whom was as compelled by the joy of 
historical investigation as your father was and your your female cousin whose name I can't recall was just you you actually had her shouting in caps and then you repeat her later when I think you see the Joyce the Joyce sculpture so I think you concentrating to go back to what you said on the week in Dublin gave you those moments to have these kernels these nuggets of gold rise up to show us what you wanted us to see in the true show don't tell of memoir you you. showed us your father you showed us those moments with him and had this been structured differently had this been 10 years of you exploring your relationship those would have been fewer and farther between and would have lost the themes of being present with your dad which was so powerful uh, it's Thank a you. it's a lesson in memoir. It really is because it was so intentional for me as a memoirist to see what you had done, but yet to others it would be very easy to gloss over that you had done that, right? So I wanted to raise up the intentionality of a structure, which while it's very organic, is also something very much constructed by the author. Thank you. Actually, I really appreciate that. It's not something that gets talked about or asked about very much, and and I I love talking about the mechanics of it, even though that <laughs> sounds um, sounds like it would be dull, but but it is, um, uh, yeah, I, it, it, it does inform the whole, the whole piece. So I appreciate that. It is, that. absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's something, you know, that I think Sandy and I could investigate now that we have interviewed so many memoirists, this idea, and it's certainly it's my private fascination, but the notion of our structures, and just to quote you back to yourself, I think you said natural structures. Uh, I'd love to explore that because so often, as you know, with memoir, it's embedded in the work, but often we have to highlight it for readers. Usually choose not to because it's our private, it's the private joy of having built the book around a natural structure is that it's cool if it gets noticed, but we don't have to put it in someone's face in order to feel it. Yeah, I call it scaffolding when I teach it. Me too. Because ideally the scaffolding comes away when the structure is built and you do Absolutely. not see it. And so right. so it the structure works in a way when it's not noticed, even though it may be overt. If it takes from the story, then that as I say, it steals from the story somewhat, then then I think it's it's starting to hamper the being that's trying to emerge from it. But ideally we set it up. And then in the course of the writing, it sort of comes down. No, the story takes the place of these posts and beams that we've erected in our own mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I use that scaffolding term myself when I teach, because for me, it's the architecture of the story. And as soon as they start to fill in, theoretically, the bricks and mortar, they, the, the writer yourself can let go of mm-hmm. the structure because you trust that it is present. And that is certainly something that you've mastered in this Thank and you. I'm sure appreciate in other people's books. Thank you. So before we have you read something from your book, I'm going to take you into a little bit of a different direction. It's kind of, it feels like a, almost a, a more superficial question in a way than the conversation we've been having. But I was fascinated with you taking a class, like your Zumba class, and then the class you had planned to to uh, the dance class with your father. And it was something that my background is in education, and I've never done that when I travel. And I just thought there is so much you would learn about a culture in how they teach and how they learn. And, and I, is that something you've done in other places you've traveled? Yeah, I always try to take a yoga class wherever I am for that very reason. Such a reason. good idea. Oh. Because for that very reason. Yeah, and you end up meeting people that you wouldn't normally meet. And it is so fascinating. I mean, for example, so when I went to Ireland, the class that I tried, that I was intending to go to was a Kundalini yoga class. Now, I don't know if people listening have done Kundalini yoga, but it is not a standard yoga. It is, in a word, it's extremely bizarre. <laughs> it's, it's very bizarre uh, for people coming in from the outside expecting asanas and downward dog. It is just not that. There's chanting, there's a lot of breath work. It's a meditation. And so there's a lot of repetitive movement. Some of it can be quite vigorous. It's very challenging, but it's very odd to the outsider. So, so I was curious because Kundalini is such a strong lineage and the and there's tremendous discipline in it. And so when you go to a class in Canada, you get a certain kind I mean this to overgeneralize, you get a very, you know, very 
specific kind of teaching. And in, in Ireland, what I found, because I did eventually, after, the, after I made the mistake and ended up doing Zumba, I found the Kundalini class a few days later. I, do, I didn't, I don't think I write about it. No, though. I don't think no. you did. Um, no. But what I, what I loved was it was so Irish. There was so much humor. They were taking, <laughs> they were taking all these liberties. Uh, it was really fun to see, oh, this is what Kundalini in an Irish setting is like. It's a bit like mm. when my, so my son grew up in Mexico and, and Montessori in a, in a Mexican school is not the same thing as a, um, as Montessori in a Canadian school. Yeah, a little, a little more, um, well, a little, a little wilder and um, more <laughs> improvisational. That's, uh, that was such a takeaway for me because I thought, why have I not done that? But I will be doing that. I will be seeking mm -hmm. out. And like you said, I think it's a great way to meet people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. And I, I just thought it was brilliant. So I learned that tip from you. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, did uh, and to, to contextualize that about you raising to your dad this is one of those sweet moments that uh, you raise it to your dad hey dad you know there's this idea about you know dancing and he buys into it and listens and respects you and then he tells us what's really behind him not jumping into the idea mm -hmm. of going to a dance class because uh, and you can embellish that but I, I wondered while you embellish for us what you discovered about your dad when you raised the idea of dance um, I wonder if it came up again, again, in the, in the after of the book. Yes. Yeah, so the story is that there is, uh, there's been research done that dancing has a remarkable effect on people with Parkinson's in that people who trudge, who cannot lift their feet, even when they move to music, they can move so freely that they often say they just, when they're dancing, they don't feel that, like they have Parkinson's, which is an extraordinary thing. No one really understands why that is, but just the, the way that music interacts with the brain and so on, or the way our brains process music, I should say, uh, lifts people, can lift people out of Parkinson's. So I found a dance class in a dancing for Parkinson's class available in Dublin while we were there and suggested that my dad and I go. And he initially was quite intrigued because he's always quite intrigued about things. And then he very quickly, he started backpedaling and he made all these excuses to not go. And I was, I had my heart set on it. I thought, what a beautiful thing to do. And uh, the writer in me was thinking, oh, here's the climax. Now we, we get to dance in Dublin. Dance with I can dad. see it. Yeah, dancing with Dub dancing in Dublin with dad. I mean, really, um, I saw that cinematically. I honestly did. And so I think at one point, this desire took over to just have the moment. Now here I am. So, so I've just learned that life is not about the big moments and yet I'm pushing still to have right. the big moment. And, um, and so eventually, well, spoiler, we didn't go. And he admitted at that point that he was afraid of what kind of shape people would be in because he had incipient Parkinson's at that time. It was very early. And he just didn't want to walk into a room with people who were far you know, much further along and essentially see his future. How painful would that have been? And it hadn't occurred to me until then. So that was a, a terribly sad moment for me. And, and, and the, a moment when I really saw him, when I really suddenly stood and saw him. And uh, we, no, we never went dancing after that. For, I think, Lars, I never brought it up again, actually. But, um, but the thing is, we don't need to because I don't need the big moment anymore. We mm. have so many others. Oh, that. and that, that's it, isn't it? That you have had so many others. And somehow, even though you acknowledge through the book that this may be the last trip, it is not your last moment. There are so many others. And that is a lesson all of us in, for me, what the more powerful part of legacy is, which is having those pieces to go back to, which we can celebrate anytime we want. And this segues beautifully into one of my many favorite things about this book, which were the little moments of italicized notes that you take about your dad. Mm. Those seconds where, and at some point you grab a hunk of paper and I think you write on a napkin, all of these things that you love about him. How does that exist in your life now, not just in the book, but how does that list of dad things exist? And I, I say this because my sister and I have this, my father's name was Floyd, and we have this thing called Floydisms because my uh, father was the huh. king of the one-liners from farm country, Ontario. Uh, right. And I've often thought to myself, where does that live now? How is that, how do I 
concretely make that part of our legacy and pass it on, even though my grown sons quote him all the time. This list of things about your dad, how does that go on for you? The list of things was something that I began on the very first day. I just called it things about dad. And I began to make notes of these quirky things, things like how often he giggles, the way he scurries, um, <laughs> knowing when I wrote the, the way he scurries, knowing that scurrying was probably not going to be in his future as a Parkinsonian person. So, uh, so I was aware that these were evanescent, some of them. And, and it was a way of just honoring what I could see, appreciating what yes. was there for the moment it was there. That I wouldn't say, I'm not continuing a running list of things, but, but it is beautiful, as you say, to see our parents in our children. That yes. is legacy. So yes. when my son will do one of my dad's little mannerisms or when he will, do, one of the things that I noted about, you know, things about dad was the sound that he makes when he's excited, which is, yes. whoop! <laughs> <laughs> he'll, he'll do that in a restaurant, in a theater, at a film. As a teenager, it drove me crazy. My son now will do that. No, as a, I mean, it do, he does it in jest, but there it is. It lives in him now. And so I guess that's, that's what I do with it now, is that I both see it in myself and my siblings, but to see it in our children is a really beautiful thing. And your son will embarrass his children and grandchildren exactly. with it, I Ideally, hope, right? Yes. Yeah, and and you, you do, <laughs> you remind us too that it once embarrassed you and now you treasure it. And I loved that because as you say, that also is legacy, is mm. our reframing of the things that we once experienced in mm. what we thought was the only way possible becomes ubiquitous later as um something we don't want to define because we treasure it so much it's it's the root of savor mm -hmm. for me you really savor your mm -hmm. father's your dad things we'll call them that yes. because mm -hmm. and don't we yeah, all don't you. we all yeah. can we get you to read something from your book this is a sure i'll just moment. read <laughs> okay i'll just read from the opening this is saturday and it takes place in dublin airport the customs officer has the face of a merry alcoholic who also enjoys his pie. His friendly eyes flutter when I tell him the purpose of my trip, to help my father with some gynecological research. But he doesn't ask any further questions, just stamps my passport and says, Welcome to Ireland, love! Which feels like a moment of sanity in an otherwise crazed world. I've come here to help my father with some genealogical research. He's quite serious about it and has been at it for years, but a few months ago, he mentioned a desire to revisit Dublin's libraries and archives, adding that he would prefer to do it with the help of a research assistant. Count me in, I'd said immediately, though we both know I fall asleep at the mere mention of genealogy, a word I am forever confusing with gynecology, particularly when saying it aloud. Still, we're here. And a bit of boredom in the archive seems a small price to pay for the chance to spend 10 days in Dublin with my dad. He'll be 80 in a few months, he'd say he's 79 and a half, and is so fit and active, I have wondered if I'll be the one scrambling to keep up. But he also has incipient Parkinson's, a disease that has begun to possess and hammer him, and I jumped at a chance for time together now. My father does not appear in the collage of tired faces watching a slow parade of suitcases file past. We weren't sitting together on the plane, having bought our tickets separately, and I didn't see him in any of the lines at customs. I park myself in a visible spot and pass the time by trying to conjure a border experience, which includes the phrase, welcome to the United States of America, love. But no matter how many times I attempt to lift that small kite of words into being, I am unable to keep it aloft. When most of the bags are claimed from the belt and there is still no sign of him, I notice that when a parent is about to turn 80, a child's reflex changes from, where the hell's he gone? To, what if something's happened? I walk and peer and swivel and conclude that he must have headed out the, of the arrivals area without me. And indeed, on the other side of the exit's automatic doors, I spot him looking bored. 
The moment I wave, however, he becomes animated, fluttering a hand to his chest and panting in theatrical, exaggerated relief while running through a breathless explanation. I didn't see you in there, so I came out here, but then I realized you must have been back there, but then I wasn't allowed back in, so I just had to stand here, wondering how long you'd stand there waiting for me. He's giggling now, shedding so many layers of relief and excitement that I pause to wonder if the airport cleaning staff ever feel they are mopping up excess emotion in addition to casual grime. Relieved, my dad goes off to find the toilets while I stand guard over the suitcases. As I watch him disappear, I decide to begin our father-daughter escapade by creating a running list of qualities I adore about him, flipping to the back of my notebook and creating the heading, Things About Dad, before printing, How Often He Giggles. A few minutes later, I look up to see him scurrying back to where I am waiting with the bags. What a plodder, my father. He has two speeds resting and scurrying. And despite the speed at which his legs are swishing and padding along the shiny airport floor, I have time to add, and the way he scurries before flipping my notebook shut. How's Thank that? you. I, I can hardly control my emotions. It's so mm. personal to me. Um, my father and I had a running joke with a crazy mop of blonde curly hair. This was how my father and I spotted each other in public. Uh, uh, it was, I knew you were somewhere in the arena, which is where we've lived most of our years together. I knew you were somewhere in the arena. So I just got up on the second level of the bleachers and looked for your hair. Right. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, not, and the theme of that, you know, takes me into sort of our, an, another question, which is story telling us who we are. And I'll bring up the hair, the Spanish Armada. You know, there's a highlight for you in all of this, which is, and I'll get you to tell the story, which is finding out not just where your hair might be from, but this moment for you where you get a story and you have this second where you think, oh, this is it. I understand what's in this for dad. I understand. I see the heat of this. Look at the juice. And he's sort of, you know, not enthralled, to say the least. It's lovely, dear, and he's so polite to you. But tell us the story about what you got and when, and when it really hit home for you in Dublin. Your curly hair story, if you will. My dad and I both have wildly curly hair, really kinky curly. And there isn't really an explanation from it when you walk down our family tree. And... Uh, one day I was in one of these libraries, bored stiff as I was every day, and talking to the, one of the librarians, which I did regularly. And he said to me at one point, oh, I knew you were an Irish girl the moment you walked in here. And I said, well, hardly when I, you know, I have dark curly hair, brown eyes. And he said, ah, oh, but there you have it. Your people are from the West Country, isn't it? And I said, well, yes, they are. And so then he put his arm on the, on the desk of the library, like we were sitting in a bar, and started to tell me the story of the Spanish Armada and uh, asking me how much I knew about the Spanish Armada. And I said, well, not much. And so he said, well, you must know that in 1588, and he told me the whole history that the Spanish Armada had you know, planned this invasion of of um, Britain and that they were, they were devastated. There was a big battle in the channel and um, ships were decimated and they beat the ones that weren't the ones that didn't sink beat a retreat back to Spain by going up the North Sea around the Orkneys and the Hebrides and down the west coast of Ireland they were on their way back to Spain but they I think because their navigational equipment not I think the history shows or history <laughs> guesses that their navigational equipment must have been uh, uh, ruined, destroyed, because they cut far too close to the west coast of Ireland when they were coming, uh, when they were retreating to Spain. And most of the ships were washed ashore the rocky west coast of Ireland, but for a two mile of sandy strand in the county of Sligo, in County Sligo, where three, I think, three, three of the ships washed ashore. And the crew from those ships survived thanks only to the soft and forgiven sand and that what you'll find in those western counties particularly county sligo is that there are many people with dark hair and dark eyes dark curly hair and dark eyes just just like mine 
well, I thought this was electric. I was thrilled. <laughs> Finally, there's, well, A, it's a great story. I'll play your dad here. Your dad says, oh, you mean the Black Irish. Yeah. And you, right. and you <laughs> said, and you said, no, and I dad. Said, I said, it, it answers everything. It, it explains everything. Not only our dark hair and curly eyes, but I have this bizarre fascination and affinity for all things Spanish. I raised my child in Mexico. I learned Spanish like it was pulling on a glove I'd lost. I mean, it was, for me, feeling was a dozen puzzle pieces just falling into place. Ching, 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 ching. But my dad said, well, there's no documentation to prove that. And flipped on, he went with on his, he went. you know, search. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, a bit of a lost oh. moment there, but <laughs> but it works for it works for me. And oh. then the next day oh, when yeah. we arrived, uh, so there's no proof. We have no proof in the family of that. But what was interesting is I didn't need it. That story was so resonated for so me resonant. that I didn't really need to know. Is there a bloodline? Is are there a series of documents that prove that descendancy or not? I actually didn't care at all, and still don't. It, right. it still feels, and this is where, no, this is the larger discussion of fact and truth, myth and story. Yes. What does it of mean? Course. Where does it live in us? And right. I think and Anglo-Saxons, well, maybe the Western cultures generally, we try to nail down, we, we have a loyalty to fact that storied peoples, oral, oral cultures do not, or they, they have such a different relationship to story. Uh, than we do. And I think we have much to learn from those storied cultures that might help us to, um, it, it might help us to embroider story into our lives in a more satisfying, ultimately, and a richer way. And, and actually to be able to navigate truth more effectively, because we so rely on fact to point us in the way of truth. And as we all know, facts can be distorted on a daily basis and steer people off course wildly. I don't think, I mean, and so this is not to say that facts are crucial and vital, particularly in journalism. Of course they are, of course they are. But if we do not have the compass of truth living and yes. operating within us, we will, we can be more easily herded off course. And so what is the value of story, of myth, that part of what it does is create up to my mind. This is my, no, this is only my conjecture. This is only you know, my lived experience and my attempts to understand this. I believe it creates in us that compass, that resonance. Yes. We have a, a sense. It's a visceral sense. It's ineffable. It doesn't live on the page only. It exists in music, in, in theater, ironically. Yes. People are up on the stage making things up, and yet it either rings true or it doesn't. It exists in nature. It exists in, yes. you know, in, in, in dance. So what is that? That's and what I became it, interested in. I that actually had pulled that exact quote out of your book to mm -hmm. talk about when you, you talk near the end about the quality of liberation that truth has in that discussion with your dad. And what I wrote was, um, you said, actually, I think it's related to that concept of ringing true, that truth is an actual resonance or vibration that has a sort of purity about it, almost a healing quality. And that's why it can be such a visceral experience. And you go on to talk about truth and how you teach it in your memoir class. And it really stood out to me because that's something that I've thought a lot about as well, and personally in my work, and uh, helping women to kind of align their lives with the truth of who they are. And you may have answered it partly about culture, but I wonder if you've thought more about that as well. Why do you think it's so difficult for us to live the truth of our lives? My dad came out, we haven't talked about that yet, but he's gay. So he came out when he was 40. And that stepping into the truth of who he was was both, well, it was devastating to the family, but it was so instructive for me as a, as a child. I was 12 when that happened. And to witness that in someone is one of the greatest life lessons that I have ever been given, to actually watch what happens when someone stands up in the truth of themselves and walks into it. And uh, I would never have wanted him to do that, of course. And, and one of the things that we do when we deny the truth of ourselves is we prioritize other people's happiness over our own, which women are experts at. 
which isn't to say that all women do it or that you know, men don't, but, but women have a tremendous talent for that that's built into, I think, the patterning of motherhood. We are actually yes. programmed to, to take into consideration another being's li life over our own, before our you, own. It's you, part ju you just wrote my book. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I didn't do anything of the sort, but I'm glad that we're... <laughs> Uh, we're aligned there. And so that is partly what makes women such beautiful creatures on earth and why we are such stewards of the earth and community and family. So it is our greatest gift and it is our heaviest burden. Mm -hmm. As so often these paradoxes, you know, uh, someone once told me when you, when you stand, when you get close to paradox, you are close to the divine. When mm. you encounter paradox, you're close to the divine. And this to me is one of those cases where what can be our greatest gift can also be our greatest burden. And, and that both can exist. It mm -hmm. would seem yes. that we have to choose. But in fact, if we allow these things to coexist, a third, another dimension opens, a third possibility emerges, which is that we can actually be both. But yes. it's very, very difficult. And it will cause pain. But as I, I don't know that I say this in the book, but I always say it in my classes, that for me, the difference between when I talk about the healing quality of truth, I know healing is a hackneyed, you know, it's an it's a overused word at the moment in that, you know, it's applied to the, every latest fad. It, this will be healing and so on. When I use the word healing, I think of it in almost musical terms, as I said, that resonance, that rings of energy, it's funny, or sound, you know, that when we're in the presence of that, we align to something. We're releasing the dissonance that we have in our own song, in our own lives. And when we step into the truth or when we write the truth or write in the service of truth, it might be painful, but it's not damaging the way that deception is. That the truth does, while it might be painful, the truth does have a liberating quality to it. That won't, it won't be liberating in the moment. There was nothing liberating to me as a 12 year old to learn that my dad was gay and that he was going off to be, to be with men in Toronto rather than be our dad at home in Peterborough, Ontario. That did not feel liberating to me or my mother or anyone else. It doesn't happen in the moment, but it does sound this chord, if you will. No, it does in the same way that when we quote unquote heal ourselves, we, you know, we add to the resonance of healing in the world. This is a case of that. When people stand in the truth of themselves, everyone around them is suddenly in the presence of that vibration. And so it mm -hmm. might be painful and often it is, but it's not damaging in the right. way that secrecy and deception are. For example, Agreed. when I was writing Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, which is about growing up with a gay father in the 70s and 80s, he gave me a box of letters and diaries that he had kept that had been in his basement for 30 years. And he gave them to me to use to write the latter part of the book. Um, and I found all kinds of things in there. You know, all, I discovered all of these things I'd never known, all these relationships he was having while he was married to my mom and so on. And someone asked me at one point, didn't that make you angry? And I said, oh, well, no, actually, it never occurred to me to be angry about it. I felt sorry for both of them. I felt yes. sad for both of them. But if he had died and I had not known anything of that and that was discovered, I think I would have had a very different experience about that because I've heard kids of gay parents saying, oh, my, you know, my childhood was a lie, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, no. My dad, their, their marriage was a lie. And I, I find that so interesting. But often it's because their father died closeted or he was closeted right. for way longer than my dad was, for example. Okay. So I've been witness to that. What, is, what happens to people when they are in the, you know, in the presence of deception, feeling that it is more important, that it's better for everyone else if I don't reveal the truth about who I am? What's interesting about that is that it tends to backfire. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I, I've been working on a book called Disappoint More People. And it's <laughs> very much about that idea. And you talked about dis worrying about disappointing your dad in, the, in um, your book as well. And I, I was reading yesterday, um, I'm just reading through the artist's way again. And Julia Cameron calls it the virtue trap, you know, then it's the yeah. same idea of, when we, we think that it's a virtuous to 
be dishonest in a way about our own lives to make other people feel more comfortable in their lives. And that can yeah. just completely derail who we are and what our life is meant to be or could be, you know? So thank you for that. But also, I, lo I love that. Uh, well, I just wanted to add just to that. Uh, thank you. But uh, just to add that when we disguise the truth about ourselves for other people's sake, it's also keeping the truth from them and their, the evolution that they would be stepping into if they were to stand in the in, inspired in, into their own truth telling exactly yes. because if they are involved in a sort of deceptive energy then their own evolution is hampered by it so and, rather indeed. than taking care of people we're actually preventing them from coming into the fullness of their their you, life, you, their truth, you, their themselves. I, I think I that's, love it. Cap, that's captivating about writing in the service of truth is a lot of what's behind memoir, I think. And, and I say this sort of to lead us to a conclusion and we could go on with you for hours <laughs> because we have, we're so fascinated by your work and you're so eloquent and so moments of theater, which are incredible. I want to ask is what's next for you, but I want to ask, would you do a solo play uh, again, and could there be something of another media that is inspired by moments of glad grace? I was asked if I would do a play about this, a solo play, and I said no, I wasn't interested. It didn't, well, hanging out in libraries isn't very theatrical for one thing, <laughs> doesn't immediately lend itself to the stage, but I was working on before COVID, because my book came out, uh, it was launched April 7th, so right in the middle of lockdown, and I had this tour planned with a musician, we'd been working together, uh, he, he's from Newfoundland, so all this Celtic music is fantastic, and we where I had taken, well, I, with the help of uh, a student of mine, actually, Jen Paquette, she had helped me adapt the book to not the stage, but I saw it as a musical storytelling version in the great Irish tradition of storytelling. Fantastic. So we, we did for the launch. So the National Arts Center came out with this program called Canada Performs, and they yes. gave artists funding whose performances had been canceled and mine had, and my whole tour had been canceled. And so he, so we we did live stream a performance of that. So it's a storytelling version of the book. It's all of these little snippets taken from from the whole course of the book. So the, the arc of the story is there. Obviously not the whole story isn't there because it's 20 pages versus 250, but it mix woven into that are Keelan's, um, you know, he plays the button accordion and the Bodron and, you know, the guitar and it's it was so much fun. So that was a great departure for me. I love working in other media and theater was, has been something that, you know, in some ways I enjoy even more than writing. Although, although um, coming back and writing Moments of Glad Grace was so satisfying for me because I had been mostly performing. I'd been Really, my life had been almost, you know, 100% or 90% theater for a number of years, maybe seven years. And I really missed just writing. I missed just living, you know, mm. just working with words. And so Moments of Glad Grace came out of that desire to just return to my original love and to do mm. it for myself, not to do it for, for an audience, just the satisfaction of creating rhythmic lyrical work on my own in my own head and so that's what came of that and if there's ever a time when I can perform again I will happily do that uh, <laughs> but but I'm but I also think there are, you know they're just different cycles in our lives and my life was was theatrical for a decade and and I I miss it I I miss it a lot I love 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 performing the last time I did the confession show was in February a couple of weeks before the lockdown started actually I feel really lucky okay. that I got to be on stage one more time before that came mm -hmm. down and but now I'm really jazzed up about teaching I have this online memoir writing program called fantastic memoir, yeah memoir writing Inc I N K uh huh and um. And it's it, because I've done a lot of teaching uh, in workshops, I've led retreats, writing retreats in France and in Mexico, annual retreats. But of course, all those things are shut down. And strangely, weirdly, I've been developing this online program for two years and I had it finished 
really right when the lockdown happened. So I waited. Yeah, I waited for the dust Mm -hmm. to settle a little bit, but I launched it for the first time in May and it's a 12 week program and it's interactive. There are a lot of things that are, there are videos and audios and reading recommendations and exercises, but I also do some live interactive stuff and I have a you know, I'm, I'm in the group a lot in the Facebook group, answering questions and doing little Facebook lives. And it's really fun. I just oh, get wonderful. Well done. Yeah. Well, I'll be, pu- I'll be pushing inquiries towards you. Pronto. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. Yes. What, what's what among your favorite memoirs? What would you, I mean, you can name resources for your course, but do you have some favorites? We love talking about our favorites. Uh, I think the book that I've learned most from I don't like speaking in superlatives, but one of the books I have learned the most mm-hmm. from is There is a Season by Patrick Lane. That's okay. one of the most exquisite memoirs I've ever read. Okay. Mm. Uh, then I have a whole bunch of favorites, but that's, uh, it's, it's a paragon in a way. It's not for everybody. It's not a okay. plot driven page turner, but it's okay. one of the most beautiful books I've ever, and I've read it probably seven or eight times. Oh, uh, I'm rereading at the moment a brilliant, brilliant, gorgeously written book. Really, one uh, she's one of the finest writers that I think this country has. Maria Much, uh, her book "Know the Night" K N O W, spectacular, mm-hmm. spectacular memoir. Um, I am, I am, I am by Maggie O'Farrell. Brilliant. I love that. I love yeah. that one. I love brilliant. her. Yeah. Um, anything by Annie Dillard, I'll yes. read a hundred times and get something yes. out of freshly every time. Uh, I'm just frantically looking around the room. Uh, oh, <laughs> Birds Art Life by Keo McClare. Love Keo McClare. Yeah. That is the, well, so there are a few. There's a <laughs> Fantastic. few. Yes. No, and thank you. That's, that's absolutely tremendous. I wanted to ask you what books you recommend because you just gave us a hit list. And uh, do you yeah. read a lot of can lit? Do you read largely Canadian writers or do you find that happens by accident? Yeah, I never choose a writer because of what passport they hold. No, exactly. I just, I just read. Uh, I, and, and a lot of it is, um, a lot of it is word of mouth. Apparently word of mouth is still the greatest way to, you know, the, the way that books get passed around. Yeah, I, I'll read anything though. I mean, I always tell people mm. read outside your comfort zone. Read, oh, read. Yeah. Do not read books by people like you about your life, about things no. that that you know seem no. like your life. That is um, that's that's not where probably you're going to do your best learning. So I mm. try to read. I'll I'll read anything and everything. I absolutely don't stick to memoir, especially when I'm writing, because I think that that yeah, that can be a bit dangerous but uh, I, I I love when I'm writing I love reading poetry that I think is the most nourishing mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. Uh, reading that I do when I'm writing um yeah but well that was right. too big. thank Sorry. you <laughs> no no that was very you. thank you thank you for that and how can people connect with you so website social yeah, media the best, the best is my website yeah uh, which is just alisonwearing.com, one L in Allison and wearing is W-E-A-R-I-N-G. Um, but I am on Facebook. I have a page there, but the website's the best. Great. Gorgeous. This has been a great conversation. It's Thank you. You guys are, you guys start are really... off the week. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you're terrific interviewers. This has been really fun. I feel as though we've just been sitting in a room having tea and a chat. Yes. Wonderful. That's what we yes. hope for. Yes. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you.